Nehemiah chapter 3 is where we're going to begin, but before we do that, we're going to take some moments to pray together. Father, thank you that we have this privilege. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to come underneath your authority, your, your truth, your spirit. We want you to mold us and make us, change us. We want to be impressed by you and, and see more and more uh, how you have given us great purpose in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Wednesday night we took a look at a, a bit of a panoramic view of history. We started with creation, saw how God created everything perfect. He perfectly created everything perfect. And then man brought sin into the world, and so we saw the fall of man and how God, through the course of biblical and human history, God was bringing about redemption, uh, showing us themes and, and foreshadowings of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he brought that redemption into full bloom at the uh, birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life and ministry, and of course his death, burial, and resurrection, where God is redeeming sinners like me and sinners like you. God is saving us from our sin and giving us true eternal life uh, to live with him forever, redemption. And how in, as part of that redemptive plan, God is restoring within us his glorious image so that the world around us, when they see us, they, they get a glimpse of how great God is, not how great we are, because we are not great. But when, when God is restoring his image in us, people get a glimpse of a living, changing, glorious God. And then we saw that God is leading everything to this final consummation, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. God has set this hope, this confident expectation, as an anchor for our souls. It is both sure and it is steadfast. It's enduring. God will perfectly fulfill His promises. God will make all things new. This matters a great deal because we look at ourselves and we see a lot of brokenness. If you don't see brokenness within yourself, you're not looking correctly. We look within ourselves and we see brokenness. And then we look in our world and we see brokenness. And it can make us a, a little discouraged. But when we recognize that God is going to make all things new, He will fulfill His promise to... Uh, make everything right, this gives us great anticipation. And all of the pain that we experience, all of the brokenness that we endure and are surrounded with and that comes from within us, God will make it all right. Knowing of the certainty of God's plan helps us to live in confident surrender. Let me say that statement one more time. Knowing of the certainty of God's plan helps us to live in confident surrender. This is very helpful to us. Think of it like this. We are united to the only certain kingdom of the world. Other kingdoms rise up and they're replaced. 
and rise up, and they're replaced. It has happened again and again and again in world history. And Daniel portrays this very wonderfully with that big statue with the uh, head of gold, the torso of silver, etc. that goes right down and how there's, a, there's this little stone that's going to break off of a mountain and it's going to come tumbling down and it's going to strike that statue and it's going to grind it to powder. In other words, there'll be no remnants of all of these kingdoms because there's going to be one enduring, glorious kingdom. It's the kingdom of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This gives us great confidence and great hope because we can recognize that God has made those that have trusted Jesus Christ a part of that kingdom. Listen to these verses of Scripture. Colossians 1.13, where the Bible says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is a glorious kingdom. What kind of a kingdom is it? How long does it last? Well, Psalm 145 and verse 13 answers that question. It says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all of His works. This is good. You know, the great part of being involved in in God's church is that you can be a vessel in the midst of what God is doing. See, Jesus made this statement in Matthew chapter 16, and it, it removes a lot of bondage from those of us that care a great deal about the church because like, we all want, okay, I want to make sure I do this right, and I want to I preach this right, and I want to lead this ministry right. And, and if we're not careful, we, we start to think that we're the reason that a, a ministry is successful or if we don't do it just right, we're the reason that a ministry is not successful. And that almost as if you're saying we're in competition with God. When Jesus said very clearly in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 that I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. This gives great confidence to those of us that care a great deal about God's church. We are a part of something that God is doing and therefore it cannot fail. It won't fail. A church may ebb and flow in its size and significance and its impact. God's kingdom will not fail. God will not fail. And so as we come underneath His authority and as we serve in cooperation with Him, as we come along Him as His co-laborers, in some ways the Scripture will, will communicate to us in the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we serve with God. When we do this, we can be assured that God is going to get His job done. And so we, we can be confident. We're in Nehemiah chapter 3. And I want to read a section of Scripture here. It's not, I don't think that, that a lot of times you're going to read this as part of your text to start a service because it, it's really one of those things we're just listing a bunch of things that's going on. But I want, I want to recognize something. It's, it's important. In verse 1, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. And the sons of Hesaniah built the fish gate. And they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, 
Miramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshuliam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baanah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoyites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. And then it goes on. It says, and this people did this section, and this people did this section, and this people did this section. It's just an interesting commentary on the history, history of the people of Israel coming back out of exile, going back into the land of promise, and they were building the walls, these walls that had once been there. They were rebuilding these walls, and you've got these people taking their section, and they're working, and it's building up. And it really took 52 days to get half of this built, or whatever the case may be. You'll, you can read that uh, in, in the book of Nehemiah. But they're, they're working, except this, this one group. They, they didn't want to get their fingernails dirty. <laughs> A little bit of slouch going on. But interestingly, even though there was this one group of slouches that are listed forever in the pages of Scripture, uh, it tells us in chapter 4 that the people, the people of Israel, had a, a mind to work. And God prospered their hands in the midst of this because it was his will to bring them back into the land to keep them safe from the surrounding nations. God is, is at work. The congregation of Israel as a whole was working to accomplish that task, uh, even with certain people that wouldn't fulfill their responsibilities. And there are always examples of people who do you know, come alongside and, and help, and those that kind of withdraw and keep to themselves. It, it's, the, the pages of Scripture are riddled with it, and our lives are riddled with it, of course. You know, remember David? You know anything about David? Yeah, probably a little bit about David. Sweet psalmist of Israel, king of Israel, uh, the one who was really foreshadows the, the coming, the, the, the king who came and will return again. There's this statement in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11 that, that stands out as part of David's story. It's not a glorious part of his story. You don't have any inglorious parts of your story, right? Yours is always trajecting upward and onward and, and right and perfect, right? Oh, oh wait, Here, yours is like everyone else's. You see times that you sin and fail and fall short, don't you? Yeah, you're a sinner like the rest of us. Me and you and David. This is an interesting statement that's made in 2 Samuel 11. At that time, when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So in other words, it was a time when the kings go out. They, they go forth. And what did David do? He stayed back. Now, do you, do you remember what happened next? You probably remember what happened next, right? He was, he was out looking out, and there's Bathsheba over there. A lot of difficult and broken and sinful things took place after David didn't do what he was supposed to do. You know, and that happens in our lives where we, we set our minds in the wrong direction. We, we withdraw, we retreat, and we... We don't give ourselves to the task that God has for us. And there are negative effects that come from that. You know, you can see this in, in John Mark's life, remember? John Mark was, went, went along with Paul 
and Barnabas on the missionary journeys, and there were a lot of difficult things that they faced on the mission field as they were spreading the gospel. And John Mark was you know, almost traumatized by the difficulties, so much so that he said, I'm, I'm out, <laughs> I'm done. And, and he leaves. And you remember it caused a little contention between Paul and Barnabas the next time they were going to go out on a missionary journey. Barnabas says, I want to take John Mark. And Paul's like, yeah, we went down that road before, remember? <laughs> you know, we needed him, and where was he? He was nowhere to be found. And so they had a, a disagreement. They split ways, and a lot, a lot of history came. But one of the things that we're really glad about, you know, your failures, my failures, they don't have to define the end of the story, do they? Because you remember at the end of Paul's writings in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he talks about Demas having departed, right? Loving, having loved this present age. He also says, ah, hey, please, can, can, you, bring, can you bring Mark with you? He's, he's a wonderful asset to ministry. He's a wonderful asset to ministry. Failures in the midst of life don't have to define the end of the story. In fact, they can oftentimes help us to recognize, I'm, I'm looking here, I'm looking at myself, and I'm looking at circumstances rather than looking at my God. And, and when we see our sinfulness and recognize that we only have just so far our resources will take us, and when we reorient, reorient ourselves to recognize the glorious grace that God has for us, His mercy and kindness and love that are steadfast and enduring, and His ability to use us even, even broken as we are, can refocus our attention. So what we want to talk about for a few minutes this morning in preparation for celebrating the Lord's table and related to our study of the book of Romans chapter 12 is that God has called believers, that's me, I don't know if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, God has called believers like us into a body to make us one, to unite us, and he uses these individual pieces of that one body to bring glory to his name to accomplish his purposes. But those purposes are not like tied to our performance. They're tied to God's ability as the sovereign God of all creation to bring about his plan. So we're not part of a failing attempt at bringing glory to God. We're not part of a failing attempt to show people the glory of Christ. We're part of an absolute certainty that God will be glorified and that God will fulfill his purposes. And so the call for us in Romans 12, as we will go back there next week, is to be a part of what he is doing in and through his church. So this morning, I'd like you to I'd invite you to open your Bibles now to the book of Ephesians. So head back into the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4. God uses all believers in ministry. God uses all believers in ministry. It's not like, you know, the superstars over there and then the peons over here. It's, it's God's work. There's only one star of the show. God is the star Right, And we all get to be a part of what he is doing. And, and, I, and I, want to be, I want to be a faithful member of God's kingdom, of God's church, with Jesus as the head, and me as one of his vessels. 
And that's, that's true for every believer. And this text makes it, makes it rather plain. Ephesians 4, take a look at verse 11. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So he's talking about gifts that God gave to his church, those that laid the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets, those that bring the gospel out into the world so that the church is filled with people and the shepherds and teachers that are bringing these people the truth of the word to bring them into a place of fulfilling ministry. So look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so God has given these gifts so that the saints, that believers, those that have come to know Christ as their Savior, that they would be equipped or given the tools so that they can fulfill the work of the ministry. Look down at verse 16. It says, from, the whole, uh, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, uh, with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's a lot to this passage, and we're just touching on it just as we think about this concept. And so we're certainly not going to pull all the meat off of these bones. This passage is letting us know that God has given specific instruction to the church to make sure that when the church is gathered together, the Word of God is going forth, giving people the tools they need so they can engage themselves in the work of the ministry. When people, when all of its parts are doing their share... The body is built up, is what it tells us in verse 16. God equips every person, every believer, to do the work of the ministry. It's not like a select group, it's everybody. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, God has equipped you. He's equipped you to serve Him. You have a vital part of what God is doing. And what God is doing endures. What God is doing will be faithful and successful because it's his work. Looking a little bit further at this, God has uniquely called or gifted all believers for the ministry. God has uniquely called all believers and gifted all believers. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This passage is talking about gifts of the Spirit. God has given each believer a gift of the Spirit, at least one. Look at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, to each, that's each believer, is given the manifestation or demonstration of the Spirit. What does it say for the next four words? For the common good. Let's say that again, please. For the common good. So to each one, God has given some way to demonstrate that the Spirit dwells in us. And what is it for? It's for the common good of the whole body. Look down a little bit further at verses 11 and following. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who appoints to each one individually as He will. So God purposely designs by His Spirit, God's Spirit purposely designs that each one would have this gifting, some type of gift. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, 
and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. All right, there's a lot, again, that could be said here. We just, here's the very basic concept. God has called you into his kingdom. How do you know? Well, because you've trusted Christ as your Savior, right? You called upon the name of the Lord. Your sins have been forgiven. God has granted you eternal life. You've been called by the Lord. And upon trusting Christ, God imparts to you by His Spirit a specific spiritual gift. He has uniquely gifted you to serve Him. Something that is unique between you and the Lord. It's, it's a really an astonishing thing. You know, we all have fingerprints. I don't know if you've, yours have worn off from all your work over the days, but I'm pr- pretty sure you probably have fingerprints. Yours are not like mine, right? And mine are not like yours. This is why they take the fingerprints so they can put you in the system, whether for a background check, for criminal processing, or whatever other thing they do. I can't tell you how many times I've had my fingers printed. Usually on the Navy base or the Air Guard base, not at the the prison system. (laughs) At any rate, why do they do that? Because your fingerprint is unique. Your DNA is unique. This is why they have forensic evidence you know, take DNA samples okay this is this is only unique to that person well there's a concept in which or a way in which uh, when a person comes to know Christ as their savior they have this unique spiritual gift that comes from the Lord that's the Lord's gift not your gift it's his gifting in you but he has purposes he wants to utilize you for what the common Good. It's for the good of other people. This is not selfish. Oh, look at look at this. Look at my gift. I want to, you know, put it in my pocket over here. This is really cool. Pull it out every now and then. No, it's for the common good. It's for God's glory. God has uniquely gifted all believers for ministry. So, with that being said, God has called you to be part of His ministry. Take a look. Take a look at Second Timothy, chapter two. God has called you as part of His ministry. All of these verses that we're looking at have so much more to them than than we have time to meditate on we're just trying to grab some concepts from them as we think through it god through paul is talking to timothy timothy was representing god's work to a group of people he was essentially pastoring a church and he's instructed as this apostolic representative to this church to to tell them to spend their time in things that are going to be fruitful and helpful to them don't waste time with arguments that that really tear down, but instead study things that will really help you is is the concept in verses 14 through 17 and 18. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. It says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 
So what are we trying to gra grab from this quick dive into 2 Timothy chapter 2? As God calls each one of us, he calls us, and he uses us in his household. He uses that illustration now, a household. You know, body in Romans 12, body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here, he uses this household concept. And, you know, in your household, you have all kinds of vessels, right? You've got, like, the crock pot. You have the pressure cooker, right? And then you've got maybe uh, one of those air fryers. We don't have one of those. You have out in the backyard, you've got your gas grill or maybe one of those fancy wood smokers that's that's good stuff right there you all these vessels right you also have trays that you put the food on it's all good and little utensils forks and knives and stuff that you'd use to eat those things and then you have toilets we don't con you know confuse these things right you don't cook a turkey in the toilet or use a toilet as a platter doesn't work very well there are different things that god uses for different you know uh, different um agendas. What is this passage telling me? God wants me to be ready to be a vessel, whether my, as a vessel that holds some food on it or a vessel that maybe is a, a, a mop bucket that the, you know, the mop can be swirled around in. It doesn't make any difference. You're in, in the master's house. I want to be useful to the master. Don't you want to be useful to the master? Who's the master? The one who created everything. He spoke the world into existence. He said... This blows my mind. I, I, I don't want to lose my awe of this. God said, let there be light. And there was light. There's nobody you know that can do that. I'm not talking about the computer systems that can make that happen. I'm, I'm talking about like actual light that doesn't have electricity attached to it. God just spoke light into existence with the words of his mouth. This, this is the master of the house. The one that in the face of rebellion and sin made a promise that he would send a, a Messiah to redeem. The one that in the face of Israel's constant rebelling said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That, that master. The one that, that came through on his promises by sending the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the master of that house. He's the one that cares for you and preserves you and gives you life and joy and peace and patience and kindness. He's the one that supplies all these things. This is the master. I want to come underneath that master. Lord, do what you want with me. This is what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 12, right? We want to present ourselves present ourselves before God as those that, that are a reason, you know, doing our reasonable service by, by placing ourselves at God's disposal. So God has called us to, as part of his ministry. Final point before we transition to our, our celebration of the Lord's table. God receives glory. God receives glory from his ministry. You know, we don't have time to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but I'll remind you of what it's talking about there. It's, it's a familiar passage. It talks about, you know, Paul planting a seed and Apollos watering a seed. Remember what it says next? God gives the increase. Then he goes on in verse 9 of that passage, and he says that we are co-laborers. We are God's fellow workmen, is how he uses it. We are God's fellow workmen. But who's the one that causes the increase? 
It's God. I can go out and sow seed in the church, out of the church, in my house, right? Sow seeds with your children, and they sow seeds with you. And you sow seeds with your wife, and your wife sows seeds with you. Who's the one that ultimately brings forth the increase? It's only God that can do that. And so who's, who's glorified in it? It's Him. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4. This is a very encouraging verse of Scripture, verses 10 and 11. The whole passage is very encouraging, honestly, but we're going to focus just on verses 10 and 11 for a moment. And it reiterates a bit of what we've been talking about this morning. It kind of takes what we've talked about in looking at various places, and it kind of captures it all in one spot. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. As each has received a gift, each who? Each believer in Jesus Christ. As each believer has received a gift, he says, use it to serve one another. This is the call. Use it to serve one another. God has gifted each one of us. Don't forget about it. Don't neglect it. Don't turn aside from it. Don't, don't bury it. Use it. Use it. Be, be used by God as a vessel. Use it to serve one another. And then it says, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Steward, manager. God entrusts something to you. You say, all right, here it is. Whether it's a paycheck, whether it's children, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a house or a car or clothes or food. All of these things are a stewardship. God entrusts them to us. Well, so also with spiritual gifts. There's an entrustment. God says, I want to do this in you. I'm giving you this gift. He says, use it to serve one another as those that have received a management and then he says, of God's varied grace. Oh, I love that expression. Of the various ways, the various angles and various shades of the way that God goes about things. I'm not into cookie-cutter ministry stuff. Like, everyone comes in and they look the same and everyone talks the same, uses the same speech and same language and does all the same things. That's called brainwashing. God has made individual, different people. And he works in us in different ways. And it looks different from person to person. It's varied grace. It's, uh, in, in I think it's the New King James, uh, manifold is the word. Multifaceted is another way to look at it. God is at work. God entrusts to us a gift. He says, Use it to serve one another as those that have received one of the various colors and shades and angles of God's glorious grace. He goes on in verse 11 to talk about uh, this further. He says, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, grace, right? God is giving us something and what God gives us, he enables us to use. This means I need to come underneath God's authority, right? I, I, don't, ha I don't have like a, a pocket full of grace and I can say, all right, let me pull out my grace now. I'm ready to use it. It's God's grace. It's his power. So I, in order for me to, to operate in God's grace, I say, Lord, here I am. Uh, help me, please, to serve you well. It's like all day long, is this, Lord, help me as I have this conversation with someone. 
Help me as I make this phone call. Help me as I answer this email. Help me as I'm studying this passage, coming in here. Lord, help me not to be going crazy because of all the things that have gone on in my house this morning. Lord, help me as, as I get into the pulpit to make sure that I'm yielded to you and, and your message and your power is on display as opposed to me. I've got nothing to offer you. It's about him and what he's got. Do this with the strength that God supplies. This is God's grace. What's the result of this? What is the result of receiving from God a gift? Receiving from God the power to enact that gift. What's the result of it? Look at the end of verse 11. It says, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. What an interesting expression. I want you to think about this for a minute. Here's what God just said. I've given you a gift. I want you to use it. Go out and do it. Go out and serve. Go rake the leaves for whoever. Serve. Go do this. So that God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. I was the one who was doing the leaves. I had the rake in my hands. I'm the one stuck with the blisters. No. no. This is the whole beauty of grace. When we are truly allowing the Lord to do something, who's doing it? He is. So there's the through Jesus Christ part. God is glorified in using people like me and you to do all manner of things. And when we're yielded to Him, Jesus Christ is doing this work in us, grace, and God is receiving glory because God deserves that. Look at the end of verse 11, the very last line. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, we started this morning this portion of our worship in the Word by, by looking at Nehemiah. And a little later in the book of Nehemiah, you come to chapter 6, and they've completed a section of the wall. Listen to what he says. So the wall was finished on the... 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly, excuse me, were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished. What does it say? There's no way you, you ragtag group of people could have built those walls in 52 days. Something special had to happen. This is telling right here. Because what we're looking to accomplish is not you know, building basketball courts or paving lots. Right? That's not what we're here for. That's helpful, good things. Not here for that. We want the world around to see God is real, God is alive, God is working, God is causing people's lives to change. Only He can do this. So we're vessels. We want to be a part of this. Ministry, fear, and anxiety can be removed when we realize who is really doing this work. God's work of bringing people to Himself and causing His church to grow will happen. He's... He's got this all under control. This frees me and frees you to commit our ways to the Lord and to serve Him with joy and confidence. Is that how you view your life? Underneath, okay, Lord, here I am. If tomorrow is Monday, 
Are you excited? <laughs> what lays out before you tomorrow? I don't know. Whatever it is, is the Lord's plan for your life. Some hard things will come up this week. Some easy things. Maybe some tragedy. Whatever it is, the Lord's laying your week out before you. Are you His?